Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can just, we're going to be looking at several passages, but the main passage I'm going to be looking at is Matthew 18. So if you want to go ahead and kind of be a little bit ahead and you could turn to that. And I just wanted to establish something before we go on. And the thing that I want to establish as we start the sermon is that we have something in common, all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. Besides being human beings, uh, and we're breathing right now, the thing that we have in common amongst every single person in this room is that all of us have been hurt at one time or point in our lives. Uh, If you don't have a good relationship with your parents, or if you are a parent and you don't have a good relationship with your children, that's where a lot of times the hurt comes out of. For some of us, it might be a relationship that didn't work out, and you were very close, you were very involved, and so what happens? You're hurt, and you carry that with you. For some of us, it might have been that you were a victim of a crime, or you were bullied when you were younger. So there are hurts that you might not even know that you have hurts, but there are hurts that you've experienced in your life. If you've ever expected something and it didn't happen, there's hurts there. Maybe anger or disappointment towards God, disillusionment. So every single one of us, we can identify with the hurt or pain that we have gone through in our lifetime and however long of lifetime means to you right now. Some of you are only in your 18, 19, so keep on growing and loving Jesus. There's going to be a lot more difficult things coming your way. When you live life a little bit longer, you realize you're going to get hurt even more because we live in a sin-filled place in this world. People hurt people, and hurt people who are hurting hurt other people. And you'll see this time and time again. I think for many of us, we just, even though we're hurting, We have just learned how to cope with it and how to live with it. It'll be like a limp that you have that you just learn to adjust yourself so that even though there's hurt in your heart and there are things that you have not reconciled and things that you have not addressed, that you just live with it because you have decided, well, what can I do? I can't change this person. There's no means of reconciliation. And for many of us, it's because we have bitterness in our hearts that we cannot let go. And this is the reason why, if you look across all the studies and research, they will tell you this is the reason why there's an increased level of alcohol use, drug use, pornography, illicit sex, gambling, any addictive behavior, it's a sign that something is not whole. Something is wrong inside. And until we receive healing, and until we can really come before God and allow him to do the work, we're going to numb ourselves. We have become a generation that knows how to numb ourselves and get our minds away from the pain. We have so much media, whether it's social media, Netflix, whatever it is, that there's constant buzzing and things that are going around us that we don't have time to think about some of the hurt that we've gone through. That's why you can go every single day for a whole week, a whole month, a whole year, and not think about some of the hurt that you have experienced in your life. 
It's only in those moments in God's sovereignty when he begins to speak to you or he brings certain people or certain circumstances. Maybe it's something, a triggering moment, whether it's child abuse or something that you've gone through, sexual abuse, whatever it may be. You hear it in someone else's life or something else happens on the news and it just triggers you and you realize, I haven't really dealt with this. And all I've been doing until that point of experiencing that hurt, I've just been numbing myself. That's why I think we're going to die of just hedonism, just finding pleasure so we can get our minds away from the pain that we're experiencing. Today we're covering part five in this eight-part series of 50 Days to Freedom. And today I want to talk about the wounds of the past because this is a very important part of finding freedom in your life. If there's anything that Satan uses, it's not only lies and deceits, but he uses pain and hurt. Because a lot of times, we don't know how to process it in our lives. And as I mentioned, we numb it. We don't know how to deal with it, so it's better just to ignore it. But it will not go away. You have to confront it. You have to have the courage to face it. And it's not from something you muster up, but it has to be the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your, in your life and in my life. I think we all know offering someone forgiveness it's not an easy thing to do. I think that's something that we can all confess to. I don't know how many of you heard of Simon uh, Weisenthal. He, he was a Holocaust survivor. And he understood how hard it was to forgive somebody. He was known as the Nazi hunter. He was on a mission. He wanted to find all those people who were the SS troops and those who were in higher positions who oversaw a lot of these concentration camps and he wanted to bring them to justice. So that he was just known, as nicknamed, as the Nazi hunter. He would literally go to different places around the world. He would raise up people to go and find them. And a lot of them were hanging out in Argentina and different places around the world. He would hunt them down to bring them to justice. And in this experience of his life, as he went from concentration camp to concentration concentration camp. He lost all of his families, and he was the only survivor. He ended up writing this book called The Sunflower, and Wiesenthal recounts this story, one story that really powerfully impacted. In fact, that, was the, that experience was the journey of why he wrote this book, as he talked about the limits of forgiveness. Are there limits of forgiveness? Do you have to forgive everyone? Or are there some people who are so evil that you just do not forgive? And I want to read to you uh, something that I think is very powerful. Because when I was reading it, I said to myself, I, I don't even know if I would have been able to do it. Especially when you think about his life. And he has witnessed people being slaughtered, gassed in those gas chambers, burned alive, shot the very own people, his family members. Listen to what he writes in the book, The Sunflower, The Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. He writes this, and this is the experience that changed his life. So let me, let me give you some context so that when I read the quote, it'll make more sense. Um, pretty much what happened was he was working in a concentration camp, and there was a hospital for a lot of the SS troops who were fighting, and then they would be brought to this hospital. 
And so he had a job of working around the hospital. And then one of the nurses came to him and said, are you a Jew? And he says, yes, I am. And then he's, uh, and the nurse said, come with me. And so he followed the nurse and he went into the hospital. He realized that there was a man lying down in the bed and he was literally about to die. He had bandages all over his body and he was about to pass away. And he specifically requested that there will be a Jew that will be there so he can talk to them. And so that's the background of the story. And I want to read to you what he wrote of that experience. And so this is the person who was about to die. He says, I want to die in peace in the long nights where I, while I have been waiting for death. Time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Now there was an uncanny silence in the room. Here lay a man in bed who wished to die in peace, but he could not because the memory of this terrible crime gave him no rest. And by him sat a man also doomed to die, but who did not want to die because he yearned to see the end of all the horror that blighted the world. I stood up and looked in his direction at his folded hands. At last, I made up my mind, and without a word, I left the room. So here's this man dying, and almost in his last breath, wanted to find peace before he passed away. So he wanted to ask for forgiveness to a Jew as representative of all the Jews, the six million or so that were slaughtered and murdered. And so he's asking him for forgiveness. And in that moment, Simon Wiesenthal, he said to himself, there was nothing inside of him that wanted to offer him forgiveness. And so in silence, after about 20, 30 seconds, he said he just walked away. I was just thinking for many of us, when we think about the pains and the wounds in our lives, I'm wondering how would you have responded to a person who's asking you forgiveness, who have deeply hurt you? And here's the thing that I want you to think about. The people who end up hurting us the most are those people that are closest to us. Our family members, sometimes people we consider friends, people that we have trusted. I want to show you this video. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of a Bruce Springsteen? Okay, some of you young ones, all you know is, um, who's, who's popular? <laughs> Lizzo, right? Uh, you know, is Justin Bieber still up there? But anyway, Bruce Springsteen is like the Mr. Rock and Roll. And he dominated the 80s, 90s with a lot of albums, and uh, he just sang a lot of different songs that uh, hit the pop charts. But in one of his concerts, and if you listen to his music, there's a lot of pain. You could tell he went through a lot of stuff. And that's why, who are the ones who, have gone, who have, are, are most pain? The artists and the, you know, the, the design, artists, and musicians, cause, comedians, because that's their way of outlet. Because when they were young, when they went through the pain, they have to turn to something. And a lot of times they would turn. Now, please, don't start judging everyone. Oh, you're in design. Oh, you're hurting, aren't you? Come. <laughs> Let me heal you. 
not everyone who's in design or who are artists and musicians are hurting, all right? But those who are hurting, what we have seen, those who are in those fields, many of them, that's how they express themselves. Anyway, that's, that's a whole different sermon. I'll talk about that some other time in the future. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Bruce Springsteen, here, a lot of the music that he wrote, it talked about pain. It's about his life. And one area that brought the most pain was his relationship with his father. And it was a relationship, not only did it go sour, but it just was non-existent. But something happened towards the end of his life, and he was sharing this at a concert. And somebody just kind of got it on their phone. So it's not going to be a very clear quality, but I want you to try to, there's subtitles, so I want you to read it or at least try to listen as best as you can. And the thing that I want to prompt you with is, after seeing this, I want you to think about yourself and say, can I relate to this? Is there anything in here that is something that I need to address starting from today? So let's watch this together. But let me, let me, uh, let me address this video in this way. Can you imagine if you had a bad relationship with your father for such a long time? And then just by some sovereign hand of God, he comes into your life and he wants to reconcile and end the old story and end that old chapter and start a new one. The thing that I want you to catch is this. He said, either we can be ghosts or we can play an ancestral role. Now, we don't believe in ghosts. I mean, they're spirits, but we don't believe in ghosts and all this other stuff. What he's simply saying is this, because I don't think he's a believer, but this is what he's trying to say. Either we could just be a distant memory and we're, we're just going to be forgotten, or we're going to have a vital part in the history and the legacy of our family. And as I think about many of you in this room, I do not know what your relationship with your parents are. And if I know human nature well enough, I would say there are a majority of you in this room that do not have the best relationship with your parents. Or you parents don't have a great relationship with your children. And I'm sharing this because I think, once again, this is going to be a tough topic for us to address. And as I was thinking about who are the closest people to you, because that's where a lot of the pain will come from. We cannot allow the cycle of bitterness to keep on going on to the next generation. And some of the generational patterns that you've learned, that your parents learned, that your parents learned from their parents who are your grandparents, and now it's being passed on to you. And some of you are thinking about being in a relationship, getting married, and you have no clue that the very thing that has affected your parents when they were younger now as they had you, it's affecting you, and you are right in step with getting married, having kids, and you're going to repeat the cycle. As I said before, and we say this all the time, hurt people hurt people. You'll see it every single time. You'll see it in the workplace. There are people who are either abrasive or they get really worked up or they're just not kind people, and you're just like, what is wrong with them? And if you were to get to know them and to un 
package or to take away another layer of the skin, the, on, the onion, as you're trying to unravel this, you realize that they're going through a lot of hurts. If you think about bullies, why do they bully? Because they've been bullied. They've been hurt. Hurt people hurt people. And so here we are in a situation where some of us right now, those who are closest to us are the ones who are the, the ones who have hurt us. And they're the ones who are constantly bringing more pain. So I want to talk about that this morning as I look at various passages. And then I want to build this argument of why it's important to understand the generational things and why our relationship, God turning us back to his heart And then we're going to look at the main passage in Matthew chapter 18 and talk about how to forgive. Because we're talking about the wounds of the past. So the one thing is simply this. We can break the cycle of bitterness by offering the gift of forgiveness. You will see today that forgiveness is a gift that you give to the person who has hurt you. Not only is it a command, but if you reprioritize or repackage or recenter your mind, instead of because God wants you to, you're like, oh God, God wants me to do this again. But if you could repackage and recenter your mind in such a way that you realize that it is a gift that you are giving to somebody who does not deserve it, that is the thing that will set you free. So I want to talk about that, that we can actually break the cycle of bitterness as we offer and give to that person this gift of forgiveness. There's going to be several Bible po- passages that I mentioned, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish and explain why God's heart is for us to break the cycle of bitterness as we offer the gift of forgiveness to the people who are closest to us or those that you might not even know, but they have hurt you. I want to first go turn to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7. Uh, it's going to be up here, so you don't have to turn to it. We're going to try to... Try to go through this as quickly as we can. I'm going to just establish something that I think is important for us to know. It says this, the Lord passed before him, him referring to Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let me quickly expound on this so that you understand what's happening here so you can understand this passage. If you look at this passage in context, you will know that God already gave the Ten Commandments. Not only did he give the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 32, but as he was receiving the word from the Lord, people down in the mountains, Aaron and some of the other Jewish people, they were worshiping golden calf. So Moses, hearing this from God, saying that your peop- the, my people are worshiping the golden calf, and so he goes down and he sees them reveling, uh, parting, and just worshiping this golden calf. So in his anger, he throws down the tablets that he received from God. He literally just smashes it on the ground. And then he begins to rebuke the people, and then he exacts God's judgment because they were worshiping a golden calf. 
Now, this is the part that I want you to understand that's important. But after this, God told Moses to cut two stones again. See, this amazing part about God is that he's always in the story and the business of redemption. So the first tablets that he received, that he broke because in his anger of what the Israelite people were doing, worshiping the golden calf, now God speaks to him now in chapter 34, because that happened in 32. Now in chapter 34, he says, cut the stone again and bring it up to the mountain because I'm going to speak to you. So then he goes up, and as he's up in the mountain, ready to hear from the voice of the Lord, guess what happens? He gets this vision of the glory of God. In verse 6 through 7a, there are seven specific attributes of God that is revealed. And all of these attributes point towards the compassion and the forgiveness that God offers. We notice that God, who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and in faithfulness and forgiving sins. And when you look at these things, you realize here is God. In this revelation of his character, of his compassion and love, we see in verse 7b the word but. And you, you, you will notice, can we go back to the passage? Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. And then we see that word but. Since God is just, he cannot just ignore sin, but God has to punish sin. And the consequences of sin will have an effect not just on that person, but from generation to generation. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says. It says, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. And say this with me, the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations. What I'm trying to say is this, and be careful. I, I want you to try to hear me carefully because I do not want you to leave this place saying I'm a victim because my parents did this. While it is true that they did something to you or you experienced something, you should never play the victim because you will never change if you are a victim and you claim to be a victim. Now, I say that carefully because Technically, you are a victim. You had no choice. There was nothing that you participated. They just, someone sinned against you. But the victim mentality says, you know what? Someone did something to me and there's nothing I can do. And you don't take any responsibility for your anger, for your bitterness. So that's what I'm referring to. I'm not trying to say that those of us who have been sinned against, that you're not a victim. In many ways, you are. But it's that victim mentality that you continue to carry that will not allow you to change. So here is God speaking to Moses, and he says, your entire family is going to be affected to the third and fourth generation. I was thinking about this, and I said, well, how can generations be affected when we're not the ones who committed the sin? And then I was thinking about this a little bit more, and I said, no, even though we didn't commit the sin, we continue to perpetuate the cycle. Let me explain it this way. Some of you grew up in a family situation where there's a lack of communication. You were never praised. You were never encouraged. You were never told. Your parents never said they loved you. And I, I will tell you that that's part of my story. I think my parents' generation, 
that grew up in the 30s and 40s, 1930s and 40s and 50s, those are some hard times all over the world, not just in the States. They were in Korea. And in the midst of those difficult times, World War II and coming out of the Great Depression, you know, many of these countries were affected. And so they just learned how to persevere. And their parents didn't tell them, oh, we love you, or we're so encouraged by you. So then what happens is that then they don't say it to us. I knew my parents loved me. Just by looking at how much they worked and trying to provide for us to live in a certain neighborhood, to go to a certain school, to do all these stuff, I knew deep in my heart that they loved me, but they have never said anything. And I remember being a youth pastor, and we were traveling around the East Coast, and we were leading uh, revival meetings. Sometimes I was a speaker. And it's amazing that after each of the sessions, there are these high school students who live in New Jersey and New York, some of the bigger cities in the United States, where their parents are working close to 9, 10, 11, 12, sometimes 13-some hours just to provide food on the table. And a lot of times they will call that the guilt money because what the parents will do will give their kids money because they feel so bad because they're not able to spend time with them. And as I'm listening to the stories of some of these young students, one of the things that they will say is this, I don't want any more stuff. What I want is my parents' attention and their time. So the very thing that they want, the parents are not giving and the parents thinking that if they could just provide them a new phone, give them a new laptop, give them the switch, and give them all this other stuff, subscription to this or that, that somehow they will pacify them, and then they will say, see how much I love you, and that's not what they needed. So for some of us in this room, what you're passing down is some of you are horrible communicators. You don't know how to express how you feel. Do you know what happens? You get married. And once you get married, you're going to have to communicate in all aspects of that marriage life. But the thing is that you have never learned how to communicate. You've never learned how to share vulnerably, like you're hurt by that comment that was made. Or you don't know how to express yourself because you don't even know how to use words to describe what you're feeling. So what happens? You start punching walls. You start yelling. And that doesn't de-escalate a situation. In fact, it gets worse. Some of you you have seen this growing up between your mom and your dad. And you know what the scary part is? Unless you encounter the Holy Spirit and unless the gospel message is penetrated deep in your heart, you're going to repeat that cycle. You're not going to communicate well with your future spouse. Some of you right now who are married, you're not communicating well with your spouse. You are going on this childhood script that was written for you ever since you were young and you're just playing it out. You're just acting it out. Because that is the script that has been given to you because you have seen it in your parents and your parents have seen it in their parents who are your grandparents. So there's one generation, second generation, third generation, and then you're going to have a kid and that's going to be the fourth generation. So it makes sense what the Word of God is saying is that there are things, whether it's a sin issue or whether it's neglect or irresponsibility, it takes a toll on not that person alone, but generations. Let me give you another one. Alcohol abuse. Same thing, because your parents didn't know how to handle the stress, so they turned to alcohol. 
And then when you look a little bit further, you realize, oh, that's what my grandparents did. And some of you right now, you're always looking forward to the weekend or happy hour. Now, those of you who know us, our church, we have nothing against drinking. We do have a problem with getting drunk. So I'm like, how about being buzzed? Well, you're getting there, so, you know, stand down. But if you're going to drink wine or beer, we have no problem with that. The Bible never talks about you can't drink, but it says don't get drunk on wine. I know some of you come from traditions that Christians should not drink at all. But what we try to say is in moderation, because we don't want to make the law something that hinders the expression of the gospel and the free grace that God has given us to live in freedom, the liberty that he has given us. Why am I sharing this? Because some of you right now, you're turning to alcohol. Now, right now, if we were to ask you, are you an alcoholic? I don't think there's a single person like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Can I ask you, when you're stressed, the first thing you do when you go home, what do you turn to? You're always looking forward to that person's birthday party or that one gathering. And all I can say is that is something that could carry on. And the kids learn. Your kids will learn. So it affects your family. Some of you had alcoholic fathers, and he was abusive to your mom and to you, and your household was so unstable that you did not know if the good dad is coming home or the bad dad. That's why some of you are still being affected because you're so nervous all the time. You're anxious. I've seen that in people who are sexually abused by people in authority. They always freak out. You can just tell they get very tense. So here we are. A person's sin affects their family and the generation that follows. Let me give you one more so that it could drive it home. And what I'm trying to mention as the Bible saying, if you grew up in a home that have insecure parents, where I mean by insecure is that they find their value according to what you do and how you perform. I guarantee you, I don't even have to know your parents. They grew up in that kind of home when they were growing up. So I'm like, how did they know my grandma, my granddad? Once again, it affects the generations. Now, of course, if they were not believers, it makes sense. But even followers of Jesus Christ, you have parents who are like the tiger moms, you know, or the, what you call the tiger dads, whatever it is. Why? Because when the Lees or the Wongs, I don't know what other Chinese name you want to use, the Lambs, if their kid goes to DBS, Whatever that means. I can think of a lot of acronyms for that one. That's pretty dumb. But anyway, D-B-S, or some of these schools that are so touted. You are insecure, so you got to send your kids there. It's, it's incredible when I hear that there are applications and interviews for three-year-olds to get into a pre-nursery school. Some of the people that I know in Singapore, they have these preschools that are the top because they're supposed to get you into this kindergarten, and then this kindergarten will get you to this primary school, and this primary school will get you to this secondary school, and this secondary school will get you into this college. So if you are an insecure parent and you find your value in your worth, 
on titles and positions, name brand stuff, all that kind of stuff, you're going to spread that to your children. Children just don't learn this out of nowhere. They learn it from the parents. So your insecurity is affecting your children, and now as these children are in college, hello, look around you, and, and, and then who has to counsel them? Hello, tiring. Yes, yeah, so that's what happens. So we're counseling you, and we realize it's not just you, but it was connected with a lot of issues with your parents. Now, there's no parent who's perfect. Christina and I, we have our own issues trying to raise up our kids over the years. Sometimes you just feel like you're just going like blind. You're like, okay, just let's try this, let's try this. You just don't know. There's no manual for this. That's why the oldest kids are always the messed up ones, right? And the youngest one is spoiled out of their mind, do whatever they want to do. Listen to me, this is important. This is what God is speaking to Moses about in Exodus chapter 34. But I want you to understand the reason and the foundation why this is important and why he said there's no one, there's no excuse and don't, he will not excuse the guilty. It goes all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. I want to read this for us. It says that this is God speaking to Moses when he first got the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 now, we were reading 34 Chapter 34, we're going to read all now to 20. Listen to what it says here. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carven image, a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities. Now here, this is important visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me by showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is where it all started. If I could just pause here and go a little bit further, it all started in the Garden of Eden because they have sinned against God. But here, when they were given the Ten Commandments, it was very clear, don't worship any other gods. Don't make into an image of a God. Why? Why is this important? Because what God is trying to say is, I am not material. I am spirit. And you cannot put an image, a graven image, on something that is spiritual because God is saying, I supersede even material things. Now, when you notice the first commandment, which is not to have any other gods in verse 3, not to have any other gods before God Almighty. The second commandment that is given is to not make any images of God or idols. And he says, don't worship them. Now, here's the key. In verse 5, you will notice the same phrase. Visiting what? The iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We read that. Now, listen. What we begin to see is that God's desire for us is to worship him and him alone. But too many of us and even our parents and our grandparents have been worshiping other gods. Hence, why the sin iniquities will be passed down from generation to generation. Some of you are like, well, what are those things? You know what your parents and your grandparents have been worshiping? They've been worshiping the God of success and money. 
That's why your parents are saying and doing the things they are to you. That is the God that they are worshiping, and it makes very clear when God says, you should have no other gods before me. But in your family, the God that you worship is the God of success and money. That's why it's affecting you to not only in your parents, but affecting you. And I'm telling you right now, once you get married and have kids, it's going to affect you. See, when you're single, like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I want to die for Jesus. No, you're not. Trust me. When you get older and you start having kids, you're going to long for comfort. You get into this protective mode. You want to protect your child. You want the best for your child. I went to, I don't know, Oxford. My kid has to go to Harvard. You know, and so why do you think they have this thing called the legacy where if you parents got into the school, then you're probably getting to that school if, if you have the right credential increases because they want to carry on the legacy. Some of us, we worship the God of earthly reputation. That's why your parents said, don't tell anybody. Or no, you're looking, making us look bad. That's your God. So everything you do, even coming into life group, you don't want to share anything because it's all about your reputation, how you look. And even in this discipleship process, you got to be completely shattered of that because it's not about your reputation, but it's the reputation of Jesus Christ. But that's the God you worship because your parents worship that and your grandparents worship that. Now you're worshiping it and your kids will worship it four generations down because your kids are going to worship it in the future because you are so concerned about your reputation. And Jesus makes it very clear. He, was, he had a bad reputation, but he was Jesus. Some of you have the idols and the gods of comfort and greed. What I'm trying to help you to see is that when you look at your life, there are a lot of things that you wrestle and you struggle with. It doesn't happen in a vacuum because a lot of it is the way you were raised. And the way you were raised is rooted in how your parents were raised. And so the sins of the father or the mother gets passed down to the next generation and the third and the fourth generation. That's what I'm trying to build as my argument to help you to understand what I'm trying to say. Now, I don't know about you, but this might seem like bad news. huh? But this is the great part. There's some good news. You know what the good news is? Check this out. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. The prophet Malachi. And no, he is not Italian. Malachi. No, it's Malachi. <laughs> Listen to what it says here. This is important. Malachi, the prophet, speaks the word of God and listen to what he says. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. What is he referencing to? Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments. Remember the law of my servant Moses, which is what? You should not have any other gods before me. You should not make any gods in this graven image. You should not bow down to it. And then there's so many other ones that he lists in numbers 5, number 6, number 7, number 8, number 9, number 10. But he's simply saying, remember the law of my servant Moses. And here's the part, the, the good news. Listen to what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then what does he say? This is an important verse. 
and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. What is happening here? This is the time where God promised that he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the father. I, I love this other translation, the New American Standard Bible. Listen to what it says. And I want you to read the yellow section with it. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Some of you in this room have been so hurt, you haven't even talked to your father or your mother or your siblings. And so in the midst of this bad news of the human heart, in the small little book of the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, hearing God's voice, speaks these words. There's going to come a time when God is going to turn the hearts of the Father or restore the hearts of the Father to their children and the children to their fathers. Now, the question now becomes, when will this be? Do we need to wait until Jesus comes back and then utter destruction, put Satan in hell forever? When will this be? Now this is getting even better. Someone turn to someone next to you. There's better stuff coming. Come on, let them know. Look at Luke, Luke chapter 1. This is what it says. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is referring to um, uh, Elizabeth, and she was carrying John the Baptist. And this is what the angel was saying. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Verse 16. And he will what? Come on. Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord uh, a people prepared. This is it. This, this curse because they have disobeyed. And so now the iniquities will be affected to many generations afterwards. But in the midst of all this, there's a prophet, Malachi, said there will come a time when I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And people are like, when will this be? And when will it be is when John the Baptist enters into this world because he's going to go before Jesus. He is the precursor. He is going to prepare the way for Jesus because when he came and he went into the temple and he opened up the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, what did he say? As he read, the prisoners will be set free and you know, blind eyes will be opened. And then he says, today in your hearing, this word has been what? Fulfilled. So when is this going to happen? It's going to happen right now. We are living from when John the Baptist existed in this world and Jesus lived on this earth. And until Jesus comes back, which is we don't know when. And I want to try to help you to see this visually. If Jesus is going to come back in this time right here, this is, let's just call it time in the future. And we know time in history because John the Baptist did come. Jesus did come to this world. He lived his life, and then right here, he died on the cross. 
That's in history. And then he rose again from the dead. So from here to when he's coming back, right now, I don't know if we're here, we're over here, but all we know is that Jesus is going to come back. Can I get a good amen to that? So that means from the, his resurrection all the way to when he's going to come back, which we don't know because it could be shorter, it could be longer, but whenever he's coming back, every space in between from his resurrection to when he's coming back, that is what we call the last days. That means because Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, he fulfilled the very words that the prophet Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Malachi was speaking about. And who is this Elijah the prophet? Is that the one in, in the Judges or First Kings? Listen, it is the spirit of Elijah, the power of Elijah, the anointing of Elijah. And so that same spirit that God used to use Elijah to help deliver and heal and do all this stuff, it's that same spirit that John the Baptist, when you look at his life, he did. He prepared the way. And who was the greatest prototype? It was Jesus. Jesus was the exact representation of God. So when he came, what he did was when he died on the cross and rose again from there, and he has provided a way for reconciliation. I hope this is making sense to you. Because when I say that it can happen today, that means that we don't have to wait 10 years later. We don't have to wait. You can actually experience the turning or restoration of the father to the children, children to the father, children to the mother, the mother to the, the children. But what is the problem? Why aren't we seeing this promise coming to fulfillment? The reason is our lack of forgiveness and bitterness in our hearts. The things that we hold in our hearts hinder this ability to come together. Now, listen, God could, God could completely come and meet you and turn things around. He doesn't even need you. He could just come instantly and perform a miracle, supernatural. But one thing that I've learned over the years is God wants my cooperation. He will open up little doors, and he's waiting for us to see if we will go through that door. Some of you who have been hurt, you've gone through things in your life. God's been showering you with his gifts, with his blessings, his mercy. He has forgiven you of some of the stupidest stuff that we have done over the years, over this past month, even yesterday. And because his love for us is steadfast, slow to anger, abounding in love, that it opens up these doors in our lives to be able to experience the goodness of God. And in that open door, what he begins to do is he begins to orchestrate things that are beyond your control, that allows maybe conversations to happen that you would have never imagined that would happen. Even allows different things to happen. Sometimes we look at these things that happen and we're like, God, why are these things happening to me? But you know what? Because that's the very thing that might actually help your dad or your mom or even you come to know Jesus Christ. That's why I've always said, don't pray for difficulties and problems to go away because it could be the very thing that God is using to break them, to humble them, to realize, God, it is all you. That's why, as I've shared my story many times before, once I decided I'm going to go into the ministry, like my whole family collapsed. My dad didn't talk to me for months. 
That's why the mother's love, they will always love you no matter what. I kill somebody, mom. Come here, son. You know, the mother's love is so different. That's why if you look at those passages, it didn't say, turn the mother's heart to the children. It's already turned. You know, it's the father's heart. That's why they said Father's Day is the lowest celebrated holiday in, in the world. Mother's Day is up there. Mama. You know, everyone loves Mama. It, it literally collapsed my world and my family because of that decision to obedience, to obey God more than my parents. But in that process, guess what? My dad became a believer. Can I get a good amen to that? I was thinking about this. If I was so concerned about, oh, what do they think? And then I just capitulate and give in to whatever they want. I don't know if my dad would have come to know Christ because he wasn't at this point of low part of his life where he says, what's happening to my son, my oldest son? Some of you sometimes are your worst enemy because the very thing that God is doing, you're actually fighting him. But you cannot overpower him. He'll just come from the different way. So you're, you're like, okay, God, come on, come on. I'm, then he comes from the back and you're like, oh, I'm dead. You know, so <laughs> God will work. So the reason why that we cannot see this promise being fulfilled of where the spirit of Elijah is upon John the Baptist, and now it's upon Jesus, and then he died and rose again from the dead. Now we're living in this last days. The reason why we're not experiencing the reconciliation and the hearts of the fathers turning to their sons and the sons to the father is because we have bitterness in our hearts and the lack of forgiveness that we're not willing to work through. But God loves you too much to leave you where you are. He wants to work in your life, even today. That's why I want to quickly look at this passage in Matthew chapter 18. I want to talk about forgiveness, so give some practical things, and then we're going to try to apply that. I don't know if you were able to notice, we're going to take communion. And I'm going to talk about why communion is so important. And if we do take this communion, then if there's people that you cannot forgive, then you're, you're making light of this communion, the cross of Jesus and the resurrection. The first thing that I want you to look at this as we think about this story is I want you to remember your forgiveness that you received from God. I, I, I want you to try to capture that in your mind and your heart. Because if we want to stop this curse that goes on from generation to generation, we want to be the generational breaker. And if God has provided an avenue for actually to break it, but we're repeating it over and over again, and it's an issue with our bitterness and our lack of forgiveness, then the choice is yours. You are where you are because you made a decision. I'm just going to get bitter. I'm not going to allow them to receive forgiveness unless they apologize to me first. Let me just say to this, they will not apologize. I realized something, like, this is where I'm going to share it later, but there have been so many people who use this illustration, I, I believe it. It's like when you're angry and you don't want to forgive somebody because they've hurt you, it's like drinking poison and then expecting them to die. You know, why, why am I dying? Because you drank the poison. Those of you who are stalking your exes, I'm telling you right now, they have forgotten about you. They don't care. They do not care. 
Why? Because they have somebody else that's there smiling in that picture in that restaurant. They're not going to be like, oh, I ate this with my ex. No, it's, this is new memories for them. That's why some of you are not growing because the pain of being hurt and you cannot release them and offer them the gift of forgiveness. That's why you have no excuse. I am not saying the things that you've been hurt by. I'm not trying to belittle that. But if you want freedom, the choice is yours. It's in your hands. So therefore, if you're not growing and you don't want to forgive, that's the choice you're making. So don't blame people. Don't ask out God why, because God is like, here's the cheat sheet. Here, here, here are all the answers. No, God, let me try to figure this out. Uh, the cosine of, you know. Remember your forgiveness that you received from God. Let's read the story. I think this is going to be helpful. It says this. You know the story well. I'm just going to highlight the principles, and then we're going to go into a time of just prayer. Listen to what it says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You know, it's kind of interesting because earlier Jesus was talking about this topic of confronting sins within a community. And therefore, in verse 21, as we just read, it's just like Peter. Man, Peter is just, mm. many of us can relate, right? Peter, Peter goes, yeah, confront that sin, man. Confront that. Then he decided to take it up one notch higher. And he goes, okay, Jesus, let's continue to talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about this topic and reconciliation. And so he says to the Lord, okay, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? And this is the part that some of you might not know or catch. What does he say? How many times? Seven times. Is that right? I, I, I don't know how to do that Chinese. What's up? Anyway, so seven times. Now, some of you are like, okay, but he, he, here's the catch. For every Jewish person, they learn that you're supposed to at least forgive the person three times. And after the third time, you don't have to forgive them. Just exact the punishment on them. So here's Peter being so magnanimous, so generous. Let's continue to talk about forgiveness. Lord, how many times should we forgive them? Seven? Because it's way beyond the three. So what did Jesus say? Okay, I see where you're going, Peter. Pete, I, I see you. So what does he say? He goes, I'm going to tell you a story. And he says, not seven times, but 77. In other translation, it says 70 times seven. Okay, those of you who go to UST, what is the total? Yes, it's 490 times. So Peter's sitting there. He goes, 
I said seven. That's a lot. That's double the what's required. Now Jesus is upping up it up real big time. So then he's scratching his head and he did, begins to tell the story. And I thought this was such an interesting story because what he's simply saying is, here's a servant that owned 10,000 talents. Now, those of you who might not know, the talent is the largest unit or currency during that time. It will be the equivalent of, if you want to look at it in the United States, it will be $100 USD. Here, it will be almost like uh, 1,000, uh, you know, the bill, 1,000 Hong Kong dollars. So the highest unit, he says 10,000 Hong Kong dollars, or excuse me, 1,000 Hong Kong dollars, but 10,000 talents. But the man is like, I cannot pay that. So the king ordered what? The man, along with his family, to be sold to slavery so that he could get some money back and get some compensation. And then what does the man do? He begs the master, please be patient with me. I don't have that kind of money. I'm going to pay you back, but the reality is you can't pay him back. That's the problem. You're just saying that to try to appear good, but you can never pay him back. And the word in verse 27, the word pity is translated as compassion. So this master had compassion, had pity on this man, and forgave his debt. See, the king showed unconditional love because the servant did not deserve his forgiveness. It was purely out of love and grace and mercy. Now, this is the problem. Hopefully, some of you, your brains are working and you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's our story. Who, who, who could have saved you from your sin? Your own righteousness? We talked about that through the whole book of Romans. You cannot save yourself. You might be a little bit better than somebody else, but you cannot save yourself. You are in a debt to God that you cannot repay. You are morally bankrupt, mentally bankrupt. Everything about you is bankrupt. There is nothing good in us. That's what the Bible says. And even though you do good things, you do it with wrong motives because you want to exalt yourself. You want to look good in front of people. That's why you're so philanthropist because you want to be able to say, well, look at this person. So in this situation, there is nothing you or I could do to somehow repay God the debt that we owe because we have sinned against the holy God. So what did God do? He goes, you know what? I'm going to send you my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that your sins will be forgiven and you'll be set free. That's us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this first part is our story. We should be able to rejoice in it. We should be able to understand it because the master is God and that servant is us. We owe God so much and there's no way we could ever repay him. But God says, you know what? I'm going to cancel all your debt and it's a free gift that I give to you. That's why I listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. This is helpful. He says this, to excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian charity, it is only fairness. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It is hard, this is hard, it is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single injury, but to forgive the incessant uh, provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the uh, bullying husband, uh uh-huh, the nagging wife, come on Jesus, and the selfish daughter, yes Lord, and the deceitful son, uh uh-huh, how can we do it? 
only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offering or we, we are offer forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it means to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exception, and God means what he says. Summary, there are so many things in your life and in my life that God, he forgave. There were some inexcusable things that you and I did that God has forgiven. And what he's saying is, if you don't understand that, there's no way you're going to be able to forgive people who has done things to you that has hurt you. That's why Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 33, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as who? God in Christ forgave you. That's the command. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, in the New Living Translation, it says this, you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Here's the second thing, and this is where it's going to lead us now to response. I'm going to read the second half of this. Jesus is not done yet. You thought, wow, this is getting good. This is a good movie. Just wait until the second part of the story. Listen to what it says here. So he, Jesus is not done. He's, he's now continuing the story. He says this, but when that same servant went out, so we don't know how long it was, but it might have been just right away. Oh, thank you so much for forgiving me of my debt. He walks out and then what? He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had ha taken place, they were greatly distressed. So these were the fellow servants who worked for the king, the master. They saw what this servant was doing, who was just forgiven of 10,000 talents, and they were distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow, this, this is powerful. The reason why Jesus used the 100 denarii compared to the talents, it is like, chump change. It's like nothing. A denarii is a day's wage compared to a thousand talents. So what, what Jesus was trying to help him to see is you were forgiven of something that was so enormous. And here's a person who owes you a little bit, and this is what you do. And the part that I want you to focus in on is the very thing that second servant said to the servant, please have, be patient with me, have mercy, and I'll pay you back, was exactly what this first servant said to the master. That's the irony of the story. The very phrase that he used with the master, the second servant used to him. But the master forgave and canceled all his debt, which was a higher debt. But then this servant had another servant who owed him much less. He did not show him mercy. He put him in jail. So what is the lesson? 
the lesson is very clear. Here's Jesus who has forgiven you of everything. And he still continues to forgive you of everything. Of how inexcusable, how unpleasant, how disgusting some of the things that we do towards God. It breaks his heart. But even then, you see Jesus hanging on that tree and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But here we are. We get a little bit slighted. We get offended. Once again, I'm not trying to belittle some of the hurts that you're going through, but some of you have been hurt tremendously by your parents, by your siblings, by your friends, co-workers, other people that you might not have even known, but they did something to you as a stranger, and you felt all this pain, and you're holding it inside your heart, and here's God saying, forgive, because the way you treat this person is the way I'm going to treat you. I want to close with some next steps. We talked about how you can break the cycle of bitterness by offering this gift of forgiveness. The first thing I want to encourage us with is this. Just develop a greater understanding of the gospel. Think about God's forgiveness in your life. Think about the cost that Jesus paid. Go, go look at that passion of the Christ. Go, go do something where you are reminded about the gospel in your life. I've sinned against God. I've hurt God, but he has still loved me. He still has forgiven me. Because the more you have a deeper understanding and you develop this greater love for the gospel, then what happens is that it changes your perspective. The second thing is this. Devote yourself to prayer. The Bible tells us to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray for those who have spoken poorly of you. Pray for them. Till this day, I have not met a person nor even experiencing for myself that when I actually pray for somebody, that my heart starts changing. Prayer is not about changing your circumstance, but it's really about changing you. In my life, there have been people who have hurt me. And I, I read these portions of scriptures to pray for your enemies. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to pray for blessings in their lives. Because God, you don't understand what they did to me. But then the Spirit of God just convicted me and I said, okay, these people who have hurt me, said all this stuff and did this to me, I'm just going to start praying for them. And so, not every day, I don't want, you know, that, that's too generous, you know, not every day. But I said, I'm going to pray for them once a week, I'm just going to pray for them. And amazing things starts happening. Because some of them are in the church, right? They're the ones who cause the most headaches sometimes. So the next time you see them, guess what? Normally you try to avoid them, but you see them and you're like, hey, hey what's going on? Hey, hey, okay, we'll see you later. And then I'm thinking to myself, I said hi to that guy. I said hi to that guy. Oh my God, what's happening? So you go back to your prayer closet, you're praying, you're praying for them, and all of a sudden you're still like, hey, how you doing? Like, how was your week? What's good? Good, all right, see you later. Next week, as you're praying for them, your heart begins to grow. I'm wondering what would happen if you started actually putting your parents, your kids, colleagues, classmates, huh? Everyone put on their seatbelt. We're getting into the taxi, Hong Kong, red uh, minibuses. Are, are you ready? Your roommates? Yeah. 
Which, by the way, that's a glimpse of what your life is going to be when you're married. So if you can't, if people can't get along with you, don't get married yet, okay? Your roommate situation, all these things that you think about, like, gosh, I cannot love them. It's so difficult. They've hurt me. They haven't done dishes forever. They keep on peeing all over the toilet. What is going on? I don't like them, and they bother me, and all these little offenses that you have, and I'm telling you right now, that when you start praying for them, there is going to be a radical change in your heart. Not that you're going to be necessarily more loving all of a sudden, but God's going to just open up a little door into your heart, and He's going to allow the grace to flow, and the forgiveness will come. So don't talk to me about, it doesn't work, Pastor, unless you've committed yourself to praying for a whole month, praying for that person. See what God will do. Those of you who are local, where you live with your parents, and I know there's, it's almost like glorified high school life, and, you know, and it's just like really difficult. And somebody's like, it's not even high school life. I'm 30-some years old. It's glorified single adult life. And you know what? When you start going home every single day and you see your parents, you commit to prayer, you're going to see some changes. So devote yourself to prayer. The third thing is this. Decide to give the gift of forgiveness. Once again, they don't deserve it. I hope you know that. I'm not asking you to do something because they deserve it, because they're so nice, they're so whatever. They don't deserve it. They hurt you. The pain is real. They literally, they, they don't deserve it. But that's what grace is, isn't it? That person doesn't deserve it, but it's a gift that you give. Why is that important? Because what's killing you is not necessarily killing them. I've always told people, who is more in prison? The guard who's guarding that prisoner or the prisoner in that six by eight cell? Do you know who it is? You know who's more free? It's that prisoner. Why? Because at least in this small little cell, they could walk around, they could do push-ups, they could do whatever, read. But what is the guard doing? Mm-hmm. They're constantly watching. And that's what's going on in some of your lives. You're constantly watching them. Are they going to do something? What are they doing? Check their social media. Oh, look at them. Mm -mm -mm -mm. And, you know, you're always doing that. And right now, who is being affected? It's you. Give them the gift of forgiveness. Release them from the prison of your heart. Open that door. Release them. So you don't have to keep on guarding and keep on wondering what's going to happen. I don't know why. I, I, I feel this tremendous spirit of the Lord. I, I'm going to speak to some of you prophetically. Listen to me. There are some of you right now that have been in previous relationships, whether it's official or shady relationships right now. Listen to me carefully and you're hurt by it and you're hoping and you're holding on thinking that maybe and i'm telling you right now that is the thing that's going to hurt you i don't know who it is it's someone in this room because i'm feeling strongly just the holy spirit speaking but i'm telling you right now unless you release them and say god i forgive them i release them from the prison of my heart and i'm telling you right now i'm wondering if blessings will come come on I'm wondering if the heaven's gates will open up because now you're no longer burdened by this thing or captured by this thing, but God is releasing this in such a way that you will find freedom 
that you don't have to worry about what they're doing. You don't have to worry about, oh, they're talking to this person. You're free to run after Jesus. It's for somebody in this room. I don't know who you are, but I'm just telling you right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that if that's you, release it so that you can experience genuine freedom. And lastly, disrupt the generational patterns. Disrupt the generational patterns. I had a video. I'm going to save it for another time, but listen to me carefully. Unless you break this generational pattern, disrupt it, because it's going on this track, you got to disrupt it. You got to, you got to knock it off and you got to say, no, I choose no longer to allow this thing that I saw in my parents. I see it in my grandparents, probably in my great grandparents. It's a generational thing after one family, after another, I'm going to be the generational breaker to experience genuine freedom. And the only way you can do that is when we pray and say, God, give me the strength and your grace and your mercy to help me to do this. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.